The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Famous quote by, by A.W. Tozer. Uh, he says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think he is absolutely right. Um, this idea of um, the, the, the thing that is going to shape your life more than anything else is going to shape your life in this world, is the image that comes into your mind naturally without even trying, that subconscious vision of who God is, whatever that thing is, that natural subconscious vision, that picture, that image, that is going to direct your life more than anything else is going to direct your life. We come up with a problem though, and that is that we naturally have quite a heretical picture of God in our brains. Our hearts are heretics, naturally. We need God to correct our natural heresy that, that we have in our mind, like, like a pair of grim, grimy glasses distorts the light. The sin in us is going to distort our natural picture of God. Um, and so I think, honestly, the, the more I've kind of walked with people in ministry and pastored people and, and, and talked about um, the Lord of people, the more, I, the more I've done that, the more I'm convinced that much of the Christian life is actually waging war against falsehoods. We're waging war against our natural view of what God is like, who He is, what drives Him, what His heart is, and really, we're, a lot of the Christian life is waging war against those lies. We, we wage war against um, the, the lies that Satan's going to whisper in our ears, that God is harsh and exacting, that God is critical, that God demands the impossible from us. We're going to wage war against this idea that God is perpetually disappointed. That's the one that I've, I find myself continually having to push back against. We're going to have to wage war against the idea that God is short-fused and angry, just ready to snap at any moment. We're going to have to wage war against this idea that God is impossible to please, maybe that He's cold and emotionally distant, like that kind of emotionally distant father we might have. And even when we might manage to believe that these things are lies and that God is who he says he is, that God is gracious towards sinners, that he does love us, even when we might find ourselves actually believing this, we might, we might find ourselves thinking, well, that's true, that God loves people, but not necessarily me. Right? Of course, God is loving, but, you know, in the Bible, there's a little asterisk next to my name next to that verse, and it says something along the lines of, yeah, God loves everyone except that one guy in Caloundra, right? God so loves the world that he gave his only son except for you. This is our natural kind of idea, right? And so today, the idea of, the idea of our time this morning in Exodus 33, 34, is that we just want to spend some time letting God speak. We'll spend some time letting God correct us, spend some time letting God shape our view of him. We're actually going to hear him speak for once. These few verses that we've just had read out, especially verses um, 6 and 7 in chapter 34, which is where we're going to be spending a lot of our time, these are probably the most significant self-revelation of God in the entire Bible before Jesus. Uh, certainly in, in, in the, in the storyline of Scripture, in the biblical theology of, of Scripture, these verses are the first time that God really articulates who he is to his people, and, and you would know if you've 
read much of the Bible, that these verses come up again and again and again. They get echoed through all of Scripture. Um, really, honestly, these, these verses are the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. John 3.16, of course, being the, for God loved the world, that he gave his only son, right? So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be letting God set the terms, not us. We're just going to do our best to just shut up and listen to God. Let him set the agenda for us. Um, I will need to probably do a little bit of recap on what's happened in the book of Exodus before we dive into our passage today. Um, So let me just get us up to speed nice and quickly. God has rescued his people from the land of Egypt. He's he's rescued them from slavery. Um, And every single step of the way, God, uh, the people have rebelled against him. Every step of the way, they've been pushing back against God's plan for them. They've rejected him, they've rebelled, they've grumbled. And finally, they kind of seal their fate by worshipping the golden calf. Um, The golden calf moment happens at Mount Sinai, where they've just entered into the covenant with God. So this is the equivalent, just so that we kind of understand what the golden calf moment is about. This is the equivalent of Israel getting married in the morning, and then before the sun goes down, jumping in bed with someone else. This is the spiritual equivalent of what Israel has just done. They didn't make it to the honeymoon. They didn't make it to the first night before they have betrayed God, before they had violated their covenant vows with God. And so God and, and, um, announces he is going to destroy them. Moses pushes back. He intercedes for the people. There is a backwards and forwards between Moses and God. Go read it. It's pretty amazing and confronting. Uh, and finally, God says, I will relent from my judgment. I will relent from my judgment. But because you have broken covenant with me, I'm not coming with you to the promised land. I'm not coming. We're, we're effectively done here. We made the covenant. You've broken the covenant. We're done. Moses, uh, and to the credit of Moses and the Israelites, they see this for what it actually is. This, is. this is a fate worse than judgment. If God is not coming, then what's the point? Friends, God withdrawing his presence from his people is worst-case scenario. It is worst-case scenario. And so they mourn, they weep, they repent, and they end up saying to God, if you're not going to come, we're not going to go. We're just not, we're not, we're just not going to do it without you. We need you to come with us. And so today, let me just start by commending this to you as a church. I want you, I'll call you to be this kind of church. The kind of church that says... We're not going to go to the promised land, whatever that means, whatever that means for LCC. We're, we don't want the promised land without God. That would be net loss. That would be catastrophic. Listen, if, if God is not going to be here among us as a church, then let's not bother. I drove into Calandra from Brisbane this morning, and I came over the, the hill and saw the, saw the ocean. The beach is wonderful up here next week. If God's not going to be here, let's go there. Don't tell Jimmy I told you all to go to the beach next week. But friends, if, if the opposite is true, if God is here among us, and if he does desire to work among us, and if he is leading us into green pastures together as a church, then what on earth can be more precious than the presence of God among his people? So this is the backstory. This is where we find ourselves now. Uh, and Moses, he gets bold. Verse 33, uh, chapter 33, verse 18, he asks God to reveal his glory, to reveal his glory. It's interesting to think um, 
what Moses didn't pray at that moment. He didn't pray, God, fix all my problems. He didn't pray, uh, God, make my life easier. He'd say, God, can you just, whatever it is, right, bless my agenda. No, he prays, show me your glory. And the, res- the response from the Lord is, it's actually amazing. I'm going to read it out again for us today. Verse 19, this is what God says in response to this prayer. Show me your glory. This is what the Lord says. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And where, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. There's something I really wanted you to see in verse 19 here. Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory. And what does God say to him? He says, I will make my goodness pass before you. Make my goodness pass before you. His goodness. Think, think, think this through with me, okay? Wouldn't, we, wouldn't you say that the glory of God is a matter not of his goodness but of his greatness? Isn't that kind of what we think? His majesty? His holiness? According to God, yes and no. Before it's those things, according to this verse, the glory of God is his goodness. The glory of God is his goodness. Dropping down to verse 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, this is where we're going to be spending it the rest of our time. This is, in a nutshell, the self-revelation of the very heart of God, who he is, what he's about, what makes him tick. He declares to Moses who he is. The Lord passed before him. This is the moment, right? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We'll get there. Don't worry about that. Um, I want you to see how amazing this is. This is, the, this is the, the first really clear revelation of the heart of God. It's, it's God opening up his heart for us all to see what he is like, what he's truly like, what is driving his heart, what he cares about, what, who he is at the, at the deepest level. And the answer we get about who our God is, is beautiful. It is beautiful, it is compelling, it is glorious, and it is enough to build our entire life upon there's, there's a newish book out. Um, I don't know if Jimmy has loved you enough as a church to recommend it to you. Um, Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lonely. Have you heard about this book yet? 
one of the best books, I think, written in the last however long. Um, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers is the title by Dane Ortland. Let me just read a little snippet from it. He says this, when God himself sets the terms on what his glory is, he surprises us into wonder. Our deepest instincts expect him to be thundering, gavel-swinging, and judgment-relishing. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. And then Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. His glory is his lowliness. We're going to spend the rest of our time basically just picking apart these verses. There's eight different components in here. I just want to go through them one at a time and let them sink in for us. And we're just going to let God tell us who exactly he is. Let him correct our heretic hearts. Firstly, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Again, this means Yahweh, Yahweh, or, or I am, I am. Um, we could spend so much time on this, but we're going to not. Um, this is the covenant name of God. It is saying so much, but it's, a, it's, it's effectively a statement about his self-existence. He is who he is. You can't define him by anything else. He just is who he is. He's the only, only being that can claim true objective autonomy from everything else. Um, he is the I am. He is the self-existing one. He is the unchanging one. He just always has been who he is, and he'll never be anything else. God is just who he is. He is the only objective reality in the universe. This unchanging God is who he is. First one, the Lord, the Lord. Secondly, a God merciful and gracious. The very first thing that God wants us to know about who he is, is that he's merciful. The first thing. He is merciful. David Mathis, he says this, the leading revelation of his glory is his mercy. The first and greatest truth for his people to know about him is that he is a God merciful and gracious. His grace and his mercy shine as the apex of his glory. The Hebrew word here, merciful, the Hebrew word um, raham, I don't speak Hebrew, so excuse the pronunciation if I just butchered that. Um, it's closely linked with the Hebrew word for womb. And so the word merciful, it has this kind of real maternal feel to it, connotation to it. It means tender-hearted compassion, sympathetic. It's, it's the same way that an adoring mother loves her hurting child. Her heart just is drawn there. She can't help it. It's an instinctive thing. There's a tender-heartedness towards her suffering child in the same way the heart of God is tender-hearted towards sinners and sufferers. This is the very first thing that God wants us to know about himself. He is merciful. He can't wait to tell us this about himself. Some of us here, we, we kind of want God to be imposing. We kind of want him to be the thundering God of glory and majesty and might, full of kind of fury towards sin, uncompromising, imposing, all these ideas, they do find their, 
they do find basis in Scripture, absolutely. But the very first thing God wants us to have in, in our minds about him is that he's merciful, compassionate, and tender-hearted. So friends, today, in your sin, in your sin, God is kind-hearted. I don't know if you believe that yet. I pray that you would. In your pain and hurting, God is merciful and compassionate. In your inability to get it right again and again and again and again, God is patient and merciful. No, friends, the, the, the heart of God is not cold towards you but warm towards you and it is to do a great unkindness to him to treat him as if he is any different to who he is. So firstly, he is merciful. Secondly, or number three, I should say, merciful and gracious. It's actually a very similar word in the Hebrew to, to merciful, that these two kind of go together, they overlap a whole bunch. It can be also translated merciful uh, or kind or compassionate. So you can see it's, it's a very similar idea, this, this particular word. Um, let me explain this idea of graciousness or gracious uh, grace to you like this. Um, when God is doing justice, he is giving people what they deserve. When God is being merciful, he's not giving them what they deserve. He's, he's holding back what, it, what, is, what they actually deserve for their sin. When God is being gracious, he goes a step further and gives them exactly what they don't deserve. Instead of bringing them judgment, he invites them into his family, gives them a seat at the table. He loves us in a way that we simply do not deserve it. We don't deserve God's grace. But God is just gracious. This is who he is. Do you see this? He's, he's not acting outside of his character. He's just doing what he does. He loves to show grace to the undeserving. It is who he is. Number four, slow to anger. This one's my favorite. God is slow to anger. Uh, it's my favorite because the Hebrew here is really interesting. Um, it's a Hebrew idiom that makes not a lot of sense to us. Basically, what it says literally, what the Hebrew literally says here is that God has a long nostril. Long nostril. What on earth, right? The translators know that we don't know what that means, and so they say slow to anger. Um, long nostril. The, the reason that means slow to anger in, in Hebrew is because there's another idiom about what anger is. So the way they talk about anger is having a really hot nose. You kind of, like, I think we can kind of understand that one. Like you can imagine like a snorting bull, a steam coming out of the ears and the nose, right? Like stamping, snorting bull. You're like, yeah, that's, that's an angry bull, right? Um, and so for them, to have a hot nose is to be furious. So to say that God has a long nose, like, a, like an elephant, I guess, right? It takes a long time for the steam to come out of the nose, right? I think that's very amusing. I love the Hebrews. Um, in English, we have, we have idiom as well, right? Like, we, we, we say things that we don't mean to say things, something else. Uh, for example, you know, we say break a leg. We know that's not kind of saying, I wish you hurt yourself. It's like, no, it's, it's saying something else, right? Uh, bite the bullet, under the weather. They're all things we're saying that we don't actually mean what we're saying. It's the same way the Hebrew here. Anger means hot nose. Long nose means slow to anger. The, the, the King James Version translates it beautifully. They say, God is long-suffering. It takes a long time for him to respond in anger. 
This is really important because if we've been paying attention to the book of Exodus, if you had been, like we did as a church, we, we worked our way through the book of Exodus last year. And um, if, you, if you had done that yourself um, and you're paying attention to the book of Exodus, you would know that just the last chapter, God threatened to destroy them. So hold up. <laughs> what's happening here, right? Um, is, he, is he slow to anger or is he not slow to anger? Like, what, What's going on here? Um, it's, it's important to remember the context of his anger in the previous chapter. What did I just say earlier on? That it was the spirit, what, what, what Israel had done was the spiritual equivalent of jumping into bed with someone else on their wedding day. So, to say God is slow to anger is not the same thing as slowing that, saying that he is incapable of anger. God is absolutely capable of anger, okay? We, we know that from Scripture for sure. However, God is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. Yes, he is capable of it, but he will absorb so much before he responds in anger. Maybe one way to say it is that God is... He has to be provoked a lot. He's not naturally angry, okay? God is naturally joyful. He is naturally full of, of joy and peace, and he does not, he's not naturally anger, angry. He must be provoked over a, long part, over a long time before he responds in anger. He's not a ticking time bomb. He's not a ticking time bomb. He's, he's not like about to snap at any point in time. No, he's long-suffering, and he is patient with us. I mean, seriously, like if we went around the room right now, who, who of us wouldn't have stories of the way that God has just been patient with us? Where we just like, we, we didn't have patience for ourselves. And yet God just loved us again and again and again and again. I mean, like, guys, I'm glad this is in the Bible because I'm slow. I think about my own journey with the Lord and I'm thankful that our Lord is slow to anger because I don't know if I would have been as patient with myself as the Lord has been with me. I'm sure if you were to reflect on your own journey, that would be the same for you. God is slow to anger, and then, watch this, we're meant to read these two side by side, these two are uh, contrasting each other. He's slow to anger, but then on the other hand, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We're absolutely meant to see these two things together and the contrast of them, right? What's, this, what, what's the saying? He needs to be provoked to anger. He absolutely does not need to be provoked to love. Love is just who he is, right? New Testament's going to say that God is love, right? He's, he is naturally loving. He's ready to explode with steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who he is. He's not naturally angry, but he is absolutely naturally loving. It is who he is at any given moment. God is ready to explode with his love towards us. He's ready to pour it out on us. He is not holding back he isn't. That's not who he is. He is love. wake up this morning and decide what was real and what wasn't real. We don't have that kind of control. We just live in this universe. And guess what? This universe 
is a good universe to exist in because God is this kind of God. Then he says, I'm abandoning steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I think, I think this, is, this is pointing at like, the, the, the capacity of God for love. He, he doesn't run out. I don't know about you guys, but um, we have a capacity, right? We're not infinite. We only have so much love we can give, even if we wanted to love more people than we can. We're just going to hit that ceiling. We have limited reserves. We love people imperfectly. We love them with mixed motives often. The bride of Christ is millions or billions of people through thousands of years. And God does not lack love. His love is steadfast and abounds to the this, um, this verse can equally be translated, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Your Bible might have that. Um, it, it's this idea of it, it endures through the ages because there's, no, there's nothing that can stop it, right? It exists for, through, through time. Next one, number seven. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The key word in this phrase is the, um, is the word forgiving. Another, it's another idiom of, um, of Hebrew and has this idea of lifting up, taking away. Back, by the way, I need to talk up. Sounds like I'm up again now. Um, has this idea of lifting up and taking away, removing, casting away. Psalm 103 verse 12 says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isn't that awesome? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he pick up and just cast away our sin, our transgressions from us. Through faith, through faith in Christ, our sins are removed from us. Christ sits us down and looks us in the eye and says, it is finished, it is gone. subject from our sin and our unfaithfulness to his faithfulness, his love, his grace, his mercy for us, his goodness and his promise that he's going to continue to be that kind of God. We get to the interesting one at the end. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty, but who will not by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, if you're like me, you read those two things together and you're like, that's just a straight up contradiction. I'm going to forgive, but I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to clear the guilty. I'm going to forgive sin, but I'm not going to clear the guilty. That is an apparent contradiction, is it not? I'm sure you can see that. Um, and then on top of that, there's this talk of visiting the sin of the fathers on, generationally as well. So there's a couple of couple of twisted bits in here that, that we need to untangle if we're going to understand what he's saying. We're going to start with the second question first, the generational one first, and then we'll come back, um, just because I think that's a good way to do it. Um, so the second question about generational judgment. This is actually the second time he actually says something like this in Exodus. He, he said, uh, back in verse 20, he said, um, he says that, but he also clarifies what he means back there, and so it's really helpful for us here 
where he doesn't clarify what he means, to jump back to verse 20 and, and, and see him kind of expand on this idea a bit more so we can understand, I think, what's going on. Um, so if we jump back down to 20, Exodus 20, verse 5, he says this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. another way um, the father's sins are visited on, on the sons because the sons themselves hate God do you see that they, be- they become the fathers they become the sins of the sons idea. Um, he forgives sin, but he's not going to forgive sin. What are you even saying to us, Lord? Um, I think this is saying that we must never think that God is undermining justice. When he some, some, some of us have quite a low view of forgiveness. Like, it doesn't cost God much to forgive us. You see on the cross that it actually cost God a whole lot to think of us. Cost, cost God the, the life of his son. He's saying to us that forgiveness isn't morally cheap. God is not flippant with his forgiveness. He's not undermining justice to forgive us. He will never let sin go unpunished or justice go perverted. That is not who he is. He's not going to clear the guilty, friends. He's just not going to do that. Here's what this means for us, right? All sin in all time is going to either be paid for on the cross of Christ or it's going to be, it's going to receive judgment. There's no sin that's, like no one's getting worth anything before the Lord. Absolutely not. He will not clear the the guilty. God is not going to violate his own conscience to forgive you. That's That's what we're learning. He's not going to violate his own conscience to forgive you. He's not going to violate his holiness to forgive you. He's not going to violate his justice to forgive you. But he is going to forgive you. Through the cross of Christ. Where sin is paid for. God's forgiveness is 
not light-hearted. It's not flippant. It's not morally cheap. It's not saying, just don't even worry about it. It's going to be fine. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. It's not what's happening when, we, when, when God is offering us forgiveness. No, our forgiveness is morally serious. It has a cost. It costs God the blood of Christ. That's how God forgives our sin. What right do you have, if you're a child of God today, to live your life burdened by your sin? Listen, the conscience of God is clear when it comes to your sin. Do you know what that means? Your conscience should be clear about your sin as well. We do not have the right to nullify the grace of God nor nullify the justice of God by living as if our sin is still upon us. It's accusing God of injustice. You don't want to do that. The conscience of your Lord is clear when it comes to your sin and the forgiveness he has granted you because of the cross of Christ. Do you know do you know how much freedom that brings us when we know that? When we actually believe that truly? I mean, so many people live as if they're still like, yes, we're saved by grace, sure. But then they live their lives on this treadmill of works trying to please God. And they never stop and go, God has granted me this forgiveness. It's come from his deepest heart. He is not morally unserious about my forgiveness. He means it. His conscience is clear. And so you can absolutely receive that grace with a clear conscience. Free from guilt, free from shame. Your conscience can be clean through the cross of Christ. Sorry, guys. When we talk about the glory of God in Exodus 34, we can't just stop there. We have to then open up the New Testament and see the full revelation of this glory, which comes through Christ uh, in the New Testament, we read this in the start of the Gospel of John, and I absolutely think that John is thinking about this moment in Exodus 34 when he writes this about Jesus. He says, The Word has become flesh. The Word became flesh, I should say. say and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just this idea of we've seen the glory of God, just like Moses did on that mountain. And he saw the heart of God. So we too, in the... In the person of Christ, see, know, experience the grace of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God through the man Jesus. Is it any wonder then that Jesus is the glory of God incarnate, in flesh, that he went on to change the world, and we're sitting here 2,000 years later talking about him, about how we've met him, about how he's changed us. We're going to finish today um, by... going to use, I'm so sorry guys, can't do anything about it, um, <laughs> do you need? cool, um, if we get this, 
Well, what do we say at the start, right? That our, our picture, our, our, our natural picture of who God is in our brain, that the one that comes subconsciously, naturally to us, that, that image of God is going to shape our life. And if we can get in touch with what God wants us to know about him through Exodus 34, it's going to change our lives. It really is. And we're going to have to do war against those heresies that are, exist in our heart, that God is harsh, cold, exacting, and brutal towards us, and we're going to use this, these verses to encourage each other today. And so here's what we're going to do. I, I did steal this from another church, but then they stole it from like a Puritan, um, William Bridges, so circle of life. Um, I'm also new here, so I don't know if you guys do anything like this ever, but that's okay. Um, I'll just make it awkward. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to use these, the, the, the character of God in these verses to encourage one another, Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. We're going to have them on the screen up there. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to respond out loud to each other, right? Not just to me, but, but to one another. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote where he says, I can't remember exactly what he says. He says that the truth in my brother's mouth is more powerful than the truth in my heart. What he's saying there is that I can believe something about God, but when you say it to me, it just, it just, it just works more. Does that make sense? I believe God is good. I hear you. Counsel me with the goodness of God. And that just, it just hits home more. This is why we love church, right? Because this is what church is about. We counsel each other. We point each other to Christ together. And for some reason, God has ordained it. That when we hear some truth from a brother or a sister, it just, it comes alive. Okay? That's what we're going to do now. Um, So I'm going to actually invite you all to stand. And uh, we're going to say this to one another. Um, There's there's, going to be a series of questions. And, and again, remember that you're talking to each other. Who is God? But does God really want to help me? But what is there in me to move him to care? But I've been sinful and backwards for too long. But I've sinned extremely, blatantly and abandoningly. But I'm weak and unfaithful to him. But God only works with important people. But I've sinned in so many different ways. But if I let myself believe this, it makes God seem unserious. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au.
we provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.